Hello, thanks for listening to the Gibraltar Today podcast. I'm Jonathan Scott. British Gibraltar territorial waters have long been a political battleground, especially around election time in Spain and in the summer, when other news may be drying up. Kevin Rees brought us the latest following comments by San Roque politician Juan Carlos Ruiz Boyce. But first, a new Neanderthal site has been discovered. It's the tenth such site in Gibraltar and the fifth to be found within the Gorham's Cave complex. The museum says the site has been named Neanderthal's Grotto and has proved to be the most fruitful dig in years. I spoke to forensic anthropology student Stephanie Cassam, as well as Professor Clive Finlayson, Dr. Stuart Finlayson and Dr. Geraldine Finlayson, who said for the team working at the Gorham's Cave Complex, the discoveries felt like Christmas. Congratulations, guys. I mean, wh- where do we begin? The, the excitement was uh, bursting through the reporting that, uh, that Ian Triai Clarence did yesterday on GBC News. Um, I think, Geraldine, you said it was, it was like Christmas. Well, it was like Christmas. It was, we, we knew that it was going to be good when we started there, obviously, but it just exceeded all our expectations. So, you know, it, it was amazing. It really was, yeah. So, uh, I mean, uh, we, we heard um, uh, Stuart explain how, uh, you know, there are different layers and, and we know that the, the, the oldest one that has been dated was higher up, considerably higher up, yeah. and was 127,000 7, years. So uh, talk us through that and the process by which you, um, uh, you, you, you know, the, 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 this has to follow. You're, you're digging, you're digging carefully. Um, you, you've found stuff that could be older, but you need to now, uh, you know, there's it's, a process. It's, and there's, It's a long process. I mean, as, as you said before, the lower levels in Vanguard, uh, the current dates we have are at 127,000 years ago. Um, this Neanderthal's grotto is, I believe, eight or nine meters below that. So, simply going on what we know from the stratigra- stratigraphy, it should be older. However, that needs to be proven. This is science, this is not guesswork. Um, so, we've now taken samples, taken various different kinds of samples, and that's going through analysis, and hopefully, in a few months' time, we should have some dates. So, but generally speaking, the, 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 the lower down you dig, the, the older mm-hmm. it, it becomes. Yeah, that, if you can imagine, it's like a like a, a cake being built up. The, you know, the, the base layer goes first, and then you build up towards it, towards the top. So if you like, the, the icing on the cake is the most recent, <clears throat> and as you go down, you get older and older. But I think an important question for us is going to be not just... Um, um, there could be a quirk in the stratigraphy and it's not, but it, it should be older. But the question is, of course, it's not only is it older, but how much older? And that's the big question. I mean, that, do you literally have no idea at the moment? Um, <laughs> not more than a hunch, no. So I, w- I wouldn't want to say something and then get caught up. Um, but, uh, I mean, there are lots of implications with what we're finding there. I mean, one of the things is that these people are clearly living off the sea and uh, exploiting marine resources. How would they get them? We don't know. But if you think that the current prevalent idea is that our own ancestors, uh, Homo sapiens, uh, emerged from Africa and colonized the world by discovering and exploiting coastal resources and then getting all the way to Australia and all the way into Europe by following the coasts, if we are able to show Neanderthals are doing the same thing at a similar time or possibly even earlier, it's going to mean rewriting the textbooks. 
I mean, it, it could have profound implications then on, 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 on our understanding of where we have come from. Well, exactly. So this is more, for me, I mean, obviously finding the antler and all these things are fantastic finds, they're exciting. But for me, going beyond that, it's the, it's, it's the implications of what this could potentially be telling us in terms of our own history, which should be of interest to all of us. And that's, that's the big question. You know, that perhaps Neanderthals were, or we've been advocating this for some time, another parallel form of being human, and that we weren't on our own once upon a time. Um, and for me, that has huge philosophical um, connotations and things worth asking. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I mean, it, it does trigger all sorts of questions, doesn't it? Um, so so uh, talk to us a little bit then about uh, the the sort of scientific approach and, and how, uh, you know, where you are in the, in the process. You, you've spent um, a few months digging uh, in the Gorham's Cave complex, which takes in Gorham's Cave and also Vanguard Cave, and now the Neanderthals Grotto, um, and and you've found stuff which is interesting, and you and you now do what with it? You have to remember archaeology, and, and I know we sometimes saying it a lot, but archaeology is a destructive process. No matter how careful you are, the very nature of archaeology is that as you're excavating, you're destroying what you've got in front of you. Um, and so you have to control every process, every step of the way, and our responsibility is that you have to record as much as possible so it's painstaking and it's very 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 slow um, and it's only once we've gone through the first stages of removing it from the site that you then start proce- processing the data that and the artifacts that you found and start receiving results from different laboratories that you may send things for for sampling for dating um, for analysis and slowly the work starts. So it, if you like, it's like an upside-down triangle. With you know, um, you start off with a, a very small amount of activity, and as each phase goes through, you get more and more information, and even more and more activity. Exciting, and and part of that, I, I mean, I see the word forensic in forensic anthropology, Stephanie, and and it uh, it triggers the the sort of images that we recorded with you yesterday where you were, uh, I say you as a team, looking through minute details in sand, looking for the tiniest of teeth, for example. No? Talk us through that process. Yeah, of course. So when we're digging down in Neanderthal's Grotto, we've got an abundance of all these different types of bones and some of them are big, like the antler, some of them are in an anatomical position, like the bird, which was amazing to see. And then we've got uh, piles, for example, of ribs. And whilst you're excavating, you're digging and slowly you're discovering these tiny micro mammals which are coming up. And it's material like that that you don't often see um, just upon first glance. So it's like Geraldine said, once you've processed and removed this material, this sediment, it's then almost like another little parcel once you sieve it and little parcels of mud and sediment and clay which hide um, small micro mammals that we then get to um, discover more and learn more about throughout the process and then once we're in the lab it gets passed over to these specialists which have been incredible to watch and see how they um, process these um, materials that we're discovering and as a student that's been an incredible um, experience and opportunity to actually see the entire process from excavating to sieving to analysing 
And it's just a fascinating how much information you can actually receive from these micro mammals. And when you arranged your time in Gibraltar, did you have any expectation that you could be part of a team that uh, that might make a, a discovery, an exciting discovery? I never in my wildest dreams thought we'd actually see quite so much material as we have seen. I was happy to work on these micro mammals and just understand the processes that actually took place within an excavation from start to finish. And I've been lucky to be able to join two teams in June and in August. So I've had the privilege of working in two different excavation sites, one in Gorham and now in Neanderthal's Grotto. So it's been fascinating to... And it's been an extraordinary, extraordinary experience to actually... And see what encompasses these ex- excavations. Excellent. Um, and uh, to, to state the obvious, uh, it, it's a team effort, isn't it? Uh, uh, t- talk to us a little bit about uh, how, how you've organised that team. <coughs> well, <coughs> we, next week we'll probably start planning next year. It, it needs that much. But I've already been talking to <coughs> a, number of speci- a number of specialists have come. Um, <coughs> and because Gorham's and Vanguard are so well known, and so high profile. Um, for example, when Paul Goldberg came, and he's the top sedimentologist in the world, and I just picked up the phone and said, Paul, I need you to come out, and he was here within a couple of weeks because we needed some analysis to be done. So those were done on the ground. But I've already been talking to other specialists who are going to come in October, November, to look at <clears throat> particular kinds of birds, or all these various things, identify um, the taphonomy, which is you know the, the evidence of cutting of the bones, burning, how the, these bones have been processed. So all that's going to be happening um, throughout the years. Because that tells you something about how that bird, what role that bird played <coughs> in the Neanderthal story. Exactly. The bird or indeed the antler or indeed any other bone, um, whether it's, you know, the butchery marks, plain, simple food or anything else. So all this we'll be doing over the, the winter months, if you like, <coughs> while we wait for the dates. The, there's, people have come sampled and we now wait for the dates to come back, which are going to be critical. How long does that take, more or less? Six to eight months. Um, and that that's, long, really? And that's going fast. Because, oh, wow. again, because we're working <coughs> in collaboration with laboratories who are just as interested in us, mm-hmm. uh, it's, not going to be more, uh, it's not going to be this year. It'll be early next year or, or by the spring of next year. And then, of course, the excavation itself. We have, um, like, a, a hierarchical structure, if you like. I mean, we, we all are in a team and arrange the... The, first of all, the questions that we want to ask from the, the levels, from the different levels, we liaise with our international research committee, which is chaired by Minya Yang, who was former deputy director of UNESCO, to make sure that they uh, give us the green light to go ahead. Uh, and then we structure it. We have, um, if you like, our people on the ground who will work towards, you know, what we say, and we come and supervise. And then all the team and students. We had students from Leiden. We have students from Liverpool, John Moores, this year. And I'm very pleased... Uh, for example, with with Stephanie, that we have students from Gibraltar. Stephanie is is, is actually Gibraltarian. Gibraltarian, which is which is, uh, which is fantastic to have. Based at uh, Cranfield University. No? I mean, one of the things um, that I accepted, <clears throat> I think Geraldine too, a long time ago, is there's so much there to do that we will not see the end of the project. So it's therefore fantastic for us to see new generations of people coming, who will be able to take take on the baton. So let's bring in Stuart at uh, that, that moment. I mean, you, you've taken on uh, more work this time. Is your sort of responsibility increasing as well? 
I think slowly each year I am giving I am doing uh, different things at the moment it's it's pretty much the arrangements and the overseeing uh, of the project I organize for example who's coming over and you have to understand Gorham's we, we don't realize but it's, a, it's an extremely important place for people studying this kind of thing so just to give you an idea we've, we've had moments when we've had about 600 plus applications um, to come and volunteer Okay, that gives you an idea. And we've literally had people from, from all over the place. Um, so, you know, it's trying to find the, the most suited people uh, for the job um, and also trying to always to, to give an opportunity, like Clive was saying, to local uh, students. I think it's, it's the future. Um, and as as Clive said, I think it's you know it's a project that's going to take probably a few hundred years <laughs> until completion. No, not a few hundred. <laughs> really, we calculated it. So, uh, Clive did it for UNESCO when we were going for World Heritage nomination. Um, one of the concerns was that if the caves are so important, and what's important about them is the sediments that contains the uh, evidence of Neanderthal habitation. If you're excavating it, you're going to remove the very thing that is making them special. So how long, you know, how, and then Clive did a very quick calculation based on the, the, the size of the cave and the, the amount of sediments in there. And he roughly calculated it would take between 800 and 1,200 years to do it at the rate that we're working at the moment. And of course, as time passes, because more technologies come along, Things actually slow down rather than go faster. Because you can you can do more with what you find. Exactly, it? exactly. In with Neanderthals Grotto now, the volume has <laughs> gone up again, so the year estimate is going to go, gonna go higher more. and higher. <laughs> I'm, I'm having visions of of of, uh, of uh, Professor Finlayson, uh, uh, you know, in some kind of futuristic, uh, you know, uh, life preservation, <laughs> coming back, being wheeled out to oversee it. Um, amazing! How exciting! So. So um, you, you made the announcement yesterday. Have, have you had some initial kind of feedback from your international <clears throat> media partners and your international collaborators? Uh, and, and if so, it, does it sort of corroborate your excitement? Are, are they equally sort of excited about what you guys uh, have found? We are getting feedback. We're getting a lot of curiosity. And a lot of very curious people out there. Um <laughs> supportive but also uh, rival teams uh, all dying to know what we produce so we have to be careful how we release the information how much and that we're absolutely certain of what we release but the interest has been massive um, and just to give an example thinking from from the past when in 2006 we published the paper on late Neanderthals in the journal Nature um, I was kept uh, giving interviews live interviews every 15 minutes for a week from all over the world, <laughs> and I had to decant to other members of the team. That was the interest from, from Australian Broadcasting Corporation, Vietnam, all the way through to the United States. It's that level of interest that it generates. And Remind it's not me, like this, 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 this was um, uh, with what finding? With This was when we talked about the late surviving Neanderthals, uh, the latest ones in the world. This was 2006, and we okay. published that evidence in the journal Nature, um, and, and it came from that. But sure. other times we've had similar responses, mm. yes. Excellent. Um, and uh, we've got a question coming in which uh, you, you talked about the level of interest among um, uh, would-be volunteers. Uh, Guillermo is asking, what do I have to do to visit Gorham's Cave if 
if, if it is even possible. Uh, I remember uh, Stefan, when he did our report, Stefan said that uh, there was a pretty long waiting list. <laughs> there is a waiting list um, because we have to control the number of people that can go down onto the site. As I said, it's a very sensitive site. But uh, the easiest way to do it is just uh, get in touch via the website or fa- our Facebook page for the Gibraltar National Museum. Uh, that would be either inquiries at jibmuseum.gi or neanderthals at jibmuseum.gi and ask to put to have your name put down on that list. And although it's a very long list, we do make sure that we call every single person on that list. And more or less, what's the waiting time? Well, that's the problem, that um, we have a, an annual quota as well that we have to apply strictly. So the, the uh, waiting time at the moment is just over a year. But, you know, uh, sometimes people cancel with very short notice, so we ring the next person and, yeah. and work our way down the list, so Register it could be less. fingers exactly. crossed. Exactly. Uh, and, uh, and I'm sure there'll be a particular uh, interest now after uh, such a, an exciting find for you guys. Before we wrap up then, it, it, let me ask you for a few closing comments from each of you. Uh, Stephanie, first, um, for anyone who's thinking of uh, pursuing uh, a, a relevant topic at university, um, such as forensic anthropology, what would your um, advice be to them? Honestly, I would just say go for it. If you've got a passion for understanding um, the development of human civilization, where we've come from, I think that is so important to know where we came from to where we are today, to have a complete understanding. And I would say just honestly do it. And if, you, if you're able to get an opportunity like this one, it's a no-brainer. <laughs> Excellent. Um, Stuart and, and Clive, uh, your closing remarks? I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a very interesting time. It's a very... Um, um, we're really looking forward to the next few months. Uh, as we said before, there's a lot coming. There's a lot of work that needs to, to be done. Uh, but I think the, the most interesting results are, are still to come. OK. Uh, Dr Geraldine, do you want to go next? Well, I'd say that the cave is very generous and every year the cave gives us something. This year she's been... Exp- extremely generous but wait for next year because it'll only get better i think oh you can see the excitement you, you <laughs> compared it to christmas before and then you look like a child at christmas Geraldine. <laughs> um professor clive finison last word i'm very excited <clears throat> i have good vibes about what we've found so my final comment would be watch this space on radio gibraltar and on gbc television gibraltar today with jonathan scott the British Gibraltar territorial waters, the waters around the rock, have long been a political battleground. And it seems to be that uh, ahead of Spanish elections, that tends to be even more true. Because uh, I was just looking back at an article from 2015 when things started getting heated uh, again. Uh, but there have been some comments by the San Roque politician uh, Juan Carlos Ruiz Boix. Boix, Boix, <laughs> Boix, isn't it, Kevin? Yeah, Boix, and uh, and uh, Kevin Rees has been following his comments. Um, so, w- how would you describe them? I mean, because on the one hand, he's calling for a favourable resolution, but on the other, sort of also uh, not surprisingly taking the Spanish, the the, the mm. new Spanish position that the waters around Gibraltar were never really ceded. Well, interestingly enough, Ruiz Boix has always has always maintained himself as quite a, a neutral uh, person in the uh, topic of uh, Gibraltar. Um, we've always seen him as a neutral person, obviously always taking the Spanish line when he has to, but he's not being one of those controversial characters like Landaluce, the mayor of Algeciras. He's a man who 
has always remained calm, collected, has always called for good neighbourly relations. Yesterday's comments, perhaps a bit loaded, they created a bit of a reaction locally as well, because there's a number of uh, items there to unpack, uh, Jonathan. Um, Firstly and foremost, our colleagues in the Spanish media, um, the ones who compare, contrast and apply critique to Gibraltar items in the news. They always, always say for years and decades it wouldn't be a proper Spanish uh, mediatic summer if Verano Azul wasn't on the telly or if Gibraltar didn't make the headlines three times during the summer. <laughs> We've ticked all the boxes. Verano Azul is available on demand on the Televisión Española online player and we've had three incidents regarding Gibraltar waters just in the last few weeks. To bring our, our listeners up to speed, Ruiz Boix, of course, calling for cordura, calling for calm, and um, uh, uh, those negotiators for the Gibraltar Treaty to remain calm and collected. And, of course, his reacting to the recent episodes in Gibraltar waters. Just for the benefit of our bit of listeners, uh, to bring them up to speed. The first one, the gas Venus oil spill at the beginning of the month. The second one was the Col- Colimbo to incursion. And the third one, the long saga, has been long chronicled by the uh, morning shows on Spanish television. Um, they've actually milked that story. The fisherman, Jonathan Sanchez, and his vessel, Mi Daniela, is a fisherman who's got a permit to fish in Gibraltar waters. And just yesterday, during the regional opt-out of the Telediario for the Cadiz circuit, he made a statement saying he would continue to fish in Gibraltar waters because he has um, permits. He acknowledged that his um, fishing methods were deemed illegal under Gibraltar law, but that he would continue to use those methods because he was fishing in Gibraltar waters, which, of course, he was saying were Spanish. And um, the Spanish media has been chronicling that story for the past uh, few weeks. Um, Ruiz Boix, of this course... Is, this is the individual who's who's been charged with uh, several offences uh, by the Gibraltar that's authorities. Correct, which the Spanish um, media is saying, is calling uh, police harassment. Um, obviously, that's the Spanish line regarding that. Now, Ruiz Boix was reacting to all of these incidents on the back of the Spanish uh, uh, government issuing that nota verbal uh, to the British ambassador regarding the three incidents... Diplomatic out, protest. Yeah, regarding the three incidents out at sea. Um, the Ruiz Boix, importantly, he's not just the mayor of San Roque, he's also the general secretary of the SOE, uh, the Cadiz branch of the Partido uh, Socialista, uh, the, the PSOE, and he was calling for cordura uh, para que los incidentes con Gibraltar no enturbien las negociaciones del Brexit. Now, this is something we do expect from Ruiz Boix, calling for calm, calling for those negotiators to remain calm and collected. But then his statements continue, and this is where it uh, got a bit uh, uncomfortable for many of our viewers and listeners and those reacting to the story online, because um, he was asking negotiators to proceed, to continue working towards a, a treaty for Gibraltar, uh, working on that zone of shared prosperity, and uh, that's where he went into greater detail and saying the zone of shared prosperity would not just be about land or the frontier issues, the land border. Uh, a zone of shared prosperity would, of course, include the waters around Gibraltar, as they call it. Um, as they call it, and he proposed, or he said, he suggested, uh, he insinuated that since Gibraltar does not have a fishing trade, a fishing sector of its own, that uh, the zone of shared prosperity would, of course, 
allow fishermen from the Campo and beyond the Cadiz province um, to fish in Gibraltar waters. Commercially. Commercially. Because they can recreationally now mm-hmm. with uh, valid permits issued by the Gibraltar authorities. Yeah. But this is um, a, a sort of a development of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lots of reactions online. People haven't liked it. Yeah, we, we've obviously had a string of Aquino Sepesca comments. Um, people not happy that... Uh, this zone of shared prosperity would include our waters, um, the big hot potato. And furthermore, Ruiz Boix also made, um, um, also suggested that uh, the treaty um, would uh, work towards the dismantling, uh, dismantling, dis- I won't try it today. <laughs> <laughs> I did Ruiz Boix, sorry. And you've done this. Dismantling the, the physical border. Of course, we've seen that in the Spanish press um, shortly after the New Year's Eve agreement. The Spanish media has always been reporting that any treaty with Gibraltar would include the physical removal of the border, something which is a bit controversial. It's been talked about locally. Nobody's clear. Um, we now know the stories developed to include other elements of the, the, the border, but not the actual physical fence. Um, um, and that's, of course, as well, creating a lot of reaction online and downtown today. Excellent. Thank you, Kevin. Um, we've had a call from Luis Pereira. Mm-hmm. Mr. Um, Pereira. Mr. Pereira himself. Mr. Madeira. Mr. <laughs> and uh, and he's said that Franco himself conceded the median line um, many years ago. Uh, and uh, and, and I, to remind myself, I had a quick read of uh, what Jamie Trinidad has mm-hmm. written about this. And, uh, and in the disputed waters around Gibraltar, time for a judicial settlement, uh, Dr. Jamie Trinidad uh, wrote in 2015 uh, that uh, the so-called equidistance principle had become internationally accepted uh, by the mid-20th century, requiring adjacent territories to divide their territorial seas along a median line in the absence of any uh, special agreement to the contrary. And Britain maintained that it had special historic rights over the contested patch of waters adjoining the Spanish coast, but it eventually retreated to the median line in the late 1960s, at around the time that Franco's government closed Spain's border mm-hmm. with Gibraltar. So, Mr. Yep. Pereira remembers And he actually correctly. lived it, yes, and he actually lived it. Mr. Pereira, of course, one of our most elderly citizens in Gibraltar. Uh, no doubt many of our listeners will know who Mr. Pereira is. Um, and yes, during Franco's uh, time, those maps did recognise Gibraltar waters and, of course, referred to the bay as the Bahia de Gibraltar. Something which didn't change till after Franco. Yeah. As, uh, as Dr. Trinidad has, um, has told us before, what happened after that is that uh, Spain went on the offensive and tried to claim um, a, a dry coast mm-hmm. doctrine, uh, an argument that, uh, that you know, the Gibraltar was ceded in the Treaty of Utrecht, but uh, never any waters uh, outside of the port, mm. uh, not, um, not a jot of water around it. Mm. Um, an argument that Mr. Trinidad, Dr. Trinidad says is practically absurd and legally indefensible. So <laughs> we'll leave him the, the last word. Seguro. You no doubt that this is going to continue to generate headlines. Spain still without a government, lots happening in the background. Thanks for listening to those highlights from Gibraltar today. I'm Kelly M. Borge, the show's producer. We're live on Radio Gibraltar Monday to Friday from 1 to 2, getting behind the headlines. And you can catch up here whenever you like. Until next time, have a good one.
GBC Podcasts, local voices on demand.